Well, hey, good evening, Fathom Academy. Welcome to week 10. Man, thank you for hanging with us this far uh, into the this class through the summer. I hope it's been a blessing. I've talked with a number of you who have really just loved uh, engaging with this content. So thanks to Ryan for being a part of this and serving us in this way. Uh, week 10, we are in our third section talking about soteriology. Specifically, now we move into the order of salvation. So uh, two weeks ago, we talked about Jesus' life and his death. Uh, last week, we talked about his resurrection resurrection and his ascension and uh, really the glorification that he is due uh, in in heaven. And now we move into how we are affected by this and the order of salvation, specifically justification, sanctification, and glorification. These are big words. These are big concepts. And these are really important doctrines to understand. So uh, stay with us, engage with this material. Let me pray for us and then we'll get after it. Lord, we are grateful for uh, time together. We are grateful for uh, the great work of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection. And now as we turn to how salvation really works out for us who are saved, uh, Lord, we pray that our minds would be open, that our hearts would be soft uh, to hear from you and to learn about who you are and who you are making us to be. Lord, we love you. We bless you in the name of Jesus and in the power of the spirit. Amen. Well, hey, everyone out there in the Fathom Academy world, it's good to be back with you again. Uh, here we are in week 10. Hard to believe we are rounding the final third of our time together. And we are talking still about soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. And we're picking up the plot uh, after we've spent a lot of time talking about the work of Jesus Christ. So a couple of weeks ago, we talked about his atoning death, right? The different ways that Christians have thought about uh, how the death of Jesus uh, ransoms and rescues his people from the power of sin and death and destruction. Last week, we talked about the ongoing work of Christ in his resurrection, his uh, ascension and his exaltation. And we closed by saying uh, that Jesus Christ is still doing lots of work on our behalf. Right. And uh, we are still inside the doctrine of soteriology today. And for the first time in a while, we're going to talk about the experience of salvation uh, from the perspective of the believer, you may have no noticed in the organization of this course that we spend lots of time talking about God first, and then we talk about human experience only secondarily. And that's by design because we want to really keep the focus on uh, God. Theology is the study of God and all things in relationship to God. But here tonight, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, what does it mean to be saved? That's the sort of basic question we're going to be looking at. Uh, and if you're like me and you were raised in an evangelical context, you're familiar with the question, are you saved, right? Uh, that's a question that's beginning to make less and less sense out of context in our culture. Um, but really what we're getting after is what does it mean to be uh, brought into the life of God, which is uh, one way of speaking about what Christians mean when they say that uh, we are saved by the work of Jesus Christ. So to that end, we're going to look at three different doctrines, which are uh, different, but related. We're going to look at the doctrine of justification, which is uh, probably the central doctrine of the Protestant Christian tradition, uh, going back to the 16th century in the time of the Protestant reformers, Martin Luther and John Calvin, for instance, emphasize the role of justification. What, what does it mean to be justified by faith, right? That's the question that we're going to try to answer in part one. Part two, we're going to look at the doctrine of sanctification, uh, which is related to the question of what does it mean to be set apart for God's presence and his purposes and to be made holy? That's the question that sanctification is uh, trying to address. And then we're going to finish uh, with a doctrine called glorification which, uh, if I can put it this way, is the last stop on the salvation train, right? The ultimate destiny of believers and of the created order is to be glorified. And we're going to talk about what that means in part three together. So uh, before we look at those three doctrines, I just want to talk a little bit about conversion. What do we mean when we say that we have been converted to faith in Jesus Christ? Because these three doctrines, uh, justification, sanctification, glorification are all sort of happening inside the doctrine of conversion. Uh, and for a good working definition, I've supplied here a definition from the theologian Roger Olson. And he says this, uh, conversion is the event in which an individual responds to the call of God 
with repentance and faith, and then receives from God regeneration and justification. And so a couple things I want to point out here. The word that the Bible uses most often for conversion uh, or the idea of conversion is a Greek word, epistrepho. And what it means is to turn around or to turn back or to reverse course, or even if we can think of it this way, to make a U-turn. And uh, the thing I want you to notice is that this is a dramatic word. When we talk about being converted uh, to the way of Jesus Christ, we are talking about a radical reorientation of our lives. It's a complete uh, reversal of our patterns of thinking and desiring and acting. Uh, It's not a sort of minor course adjustment uh, like you might see Oh, I don't know, like in self-help literature that's very popular in our culture, uh, where you can kind of practice some life hacks to really maximize your potential. That's not really what the gospel is all about. The gospel is about a radical turning away from sin and turning towards God in faith. And so uh, to that end, uh, theologians have often spoken about uh, conversion as being a dynamic experience. That means it involves movement, right? And you can see uh, in Olson's definition, he speaks about sort of responding to the call of God in faith. And that involves two types of turning, right? One, it's, uh, involves a negative turning, uh, which Christians call repentance. We're going to talk about ter- that term at great length, uh, momentarily. But for now, uh, we'll just say that repentance means turning away from the way of sin and death. And that's matched by a positive turning, which we call faith, which is a turning toward God in trust. And we're going to spend a bunch of time unpacking all that. So I'll leave it there for now. Um, So repentance is an interesting term. Uh, It's a a uniquely Christian idea, this idea of repenting. But what do we mean by it? Well, I just want to walk you through a little bit of the biblical, biblical vocabulary of repentance to sort of make sense of these terms and how they're used in the Bible both in Hebrew and in Greek. And I want to introduce you to a couple of terms in Hebrew that capture an important distinction. One word is the word nakam, and it means uh, literally to pant or to sigh or to groan. Uh, In fact, like an animal. So the idea here is uh, that repentance involves on one level an almost sort of uh, animalian sort of grief for sin. And uh, if this feels a little abstract, maybe you can relate to it this way. Have you ever done something that you knew you shouldn't have done? And then when you see that you've done it and then you see what the, the impact is going to be, you can only just sort of sigh like, ah, man, that was really stupid. I shouldn't have done that. That's sort of what this word is getting after. But that by itself doesn't make for repentance. It makes for, I don't know, remorse or regret. And that's why the Hebrew writers also use the second word, shub, which is a conscious separation from sin. So repentance for the biblical writers is not merely to feel sorry for what you've done. It is to consciously separate yourself from sin. Uh, And that's also reflected in the Greek terms too. Uh, The first is one that's really fun to say. It's the word metamelomai. uh, And it means to experience regret or remorse. And that's roughly equivalent to that Hebrew verb nakam. But Greek also has this word, uh, metanoieto. Uh, this is the Greek word or metanoia in the noun form is probably the more common, uh, that we usually translate repentance. Um, it might, it, it means something like to reconsider or to think about a matter differently or even most literally. And I think this is the best translation to change one's mind. That's what the word literally means in Greek to change your mind. That's, uh, what the biblical writers think of as repentance. It is to agree with God, if we could put it that way, uh, about our sin, about our need to be saved, to be rescued, and it is to change our minds. It's made up of two Greek words, meta, as in metamorphosis, uh, and the Greek word nous, which is the word for mind. It means to change one's mind. And so uh, the the life of repentance is one that is continually being renewed uh, in our minds, right? As, you know, as Paul says in Romans 12, you know, don't be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed, he says, by the renewing of your mind. It's a life of continual repentance. And Martin Luther uh, very famously said in his 95 theses um, that the, that uh, when God calls us to repent, 
This is meant to be a daily practice where we are continually agreeing with God, repenting of our sin, not merely feeling sorry for it or sorry that we got caught, right? Uh, I was a teenager once. I also worked as a youth pastor. Maybe you remember your teenage years. Uh, and if you do, there's a big difference between being sorry and being sorry that you got caught. And the biblical text also makes this distinction. In terms of this positive turning towards God, the word that we use in the Christian tradition is faith. And we use faith all the time in, in uh, our churches and in our personal lives of discipleship. But what do we mean by faith? Well, here, I just want to draw some very important themes uh, from the Bible uh, to help us kind of understand uh, that faith has two, at least two dimensions to it, both in Hebrew and in Greek. Uh, in Hebrew, you've got two different words that are translated as to have faith or to believe. Uh, aman which means to believe or to regard as true. This is a purely sort of intellectualist idea. Uh, it is to regard a proposition as correct. So uh, I would say, I believe that there is a chair right there, right? I believe that that state of affairs is true. It corresponds with reality. But they also use a word, batak, which means to lean upon or to confide in. And there's a very important distinction here. Uh, so for the Hebrew writers... On one level, to have faith is to believe something is true, but on another level, a more profound level, it means to lean upon something or to confide in it uh, or to trust it. And this also comes through in the Greek. Uh, the verb to believe in Greek is the word pisteo, um, where we get the English word epistemology. I don't know if that helps or confuses you more. If that's helpful, fine. If not, uh, just forget I said that. But pisteo means to believe what someone says or to trust in someone or to trust that the information they're giving you is true. Uh, and the noun form pistis is faith, or it could be translated as trust. What I want you to get is that this term in Greek has two different levels of meaning. And number one, it means to regard something as true. And another level, it means to uh, trust something with your being uh, or to give your allegiance to something, right? Now, what's interesting is that in the New Testament, simply believing the right information about God does not qualify as saving faith. A good example is in the Gospel of Mark, when Jesus is going throughout Galilee, performing miracles and exorcisms. You know, what's interesting is all the demons that Jesus encounters in the gospel of Mark, they all know exactly who he is. They'd say, oh, I know who you are. A demon says to Jesus in the gospel of Mark, he says, you're the Holy One of God, right? You're the Messiah, which is technically true, right? Or what about in uh, the book of James, where James says to his readers, oh, you believe that there's one God. Re oh, really good job. Do you know who else uh, knows that? demons, right? So the idea here is you can have your doctrinal ducks all in a row and still not have saving faith. That's because pistis has this second meaning, uh, to trust in something or to give your allegiance to something, right? Uh, it's sort of like the difference between me acknowledging uh, when the Patriots win a Super Bowl that they are the world champions but I will never ever give my allegiance to them because they are the antichrist. Right. So maybe that distinction comes through, right. Uh, it's not merely to believe information about God, but it is tr to trust God with one's whole being to throw yourself on God uh, with the understanding and with the belief that he can bear the weight of your trust. Which brings us to the doctrine of justification, which is all about trust. When we talk about justification by faith, we could just as easily say justification by trust. Trust that God is who he says he is. Trust that God has given himself for us. Uh, and, uh, and also carrying that other sense of allegiance, right? We are justified by giving our allegiance to Jesus Christ. So how might we define justification? Another word that is used quite often in Christian circles. Uh, here's a basic definition uh, that I think is helpful. Uh, justification is that divine action by which God declares sinners as righteous and beyond the scope of condemnation and thereby restoring sinners to right relationship with himself. A couple things I want to point out here. Justification is a divine action again and again and again. The biblical writers emphasize we cannot justify ourselves before God. You may recall a few weeks back when we talked about the doctrine of sin and how dire the human predicament is. 
We cannot extricate ourselves from that predicament. It has to be a divine rescue operation that comes to us from the outside. And what does God do when he justifies us? He declares us righteous. And at least in the Protestant tradition, not in the Roman Catholic tradition, which we're not really going to talk about. Uh, if there are questions about that, maybe we can talk about it more later. But at least in the Protestant tr- tradition, justification means that God declares us righteous, even though we are not. And he does this on the basis of Jesus Christ's work on our behalf. Uh, and it restores us to right relationships. So ultimately, justification is all about the restoration of uh, relationship. Uh, not only of uh, individual sinners to God, but also the people of God justified corporately. So justification in terms of its origins is a forensic or a legal term. We're going to talk about the way that the Bible uses the words that we translate justification in English, and they are almost always legal terms, sometimes financial terms, but I'll explain that in a minute. But the idea here is uh, the logic behind justification is a legal logic. It's the idea that we are guilty and we are somehow declared innocent or not guilty or righteous, right? We're going to talk more about that in a minute. And it denotes an actual change in status before God. To be justified is to actually have a new righteous standing before God by grace alone, uh, as the reformer said, sola gratia, and through faith alone, sola fidei, right? Uh, We are justified sheerly by God's grace, which we might understand as his unmerited favor towards us, through faith, through belief, trust, allegiance. A couple key terms that you'll need to be familiar with if you want to understand justification. Both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, there is sometimes a misconception that the Old Testament teaches salvations by works and the New Testament teaches salvation by grace. I'm going to show you in a second how that is not at all the case. And we can see here already that in... uh, in, in Hebrew, the concept of justification is there in this word sadak. And it means to pronounce or to treat someone who is not penally liable, uh, or in other words, to accord privileges due to one who has conformed to the law. In other words, all I want you to notice for our purposes right now is that sadak is a legal term. To be righteous, uh, to have, yeah, to, to have righteousness is to be treated as one who has complied with the law. We'll talk a, a little bit more about how that's actually used in the text here in a minute. Uh, the big term in Greek is diakuo in all of its cognates. It, it appears in a bunch of different forms in Greek. We won't go through all of them, but what it means most basically is to declare someone to be just or righteous or to pronounce a legal judgment of acquittal, sometimes of condemnation, but usually of acquittal to vindicate as right or just or to exonerate, right? And more or less is a legal term that means that you have been, you've been uh, cleared of all charges of a crime, right? Uh, when I was 16, I had had my license for two weeks, my driver's license. Uh, and I was at a friend's house who was 15. He couldn't drive. Uh, but it was the middle of a blizzard. I got my license when I was, uh, 16 and my birthday's in December and the roads were terrible. And, uh, he had a girlfriend who lived way on the other side of town and, uh, she had friends hanging out with her. And my friend said, uh, Hey, drive me up to see my girlfriend up in North Glen. And I said, well, it's a blizzard outside. And he said, yeah, but there are girls there. And I thought, oh yeah, good point. Uh, girls, what are we going to do? Not go. So we tried to go. Uh, and we made it about 400 yards from his house before I slid off the road and I went through a fence and I landed in someone's backyard. Uh, and that was on my driving record for a long time. I think, I think it's off now, but if you were to unseal my driving record, that charge would no longer show up, right? It has been expunged from the record. That's a little bit, uh, uh, like what's going on with the, the Greek term for justification to have a charge expunged from your record. So one of the ways that the biblical writers talk about salvation is to have the penalty that stood against you for sin uh, discharged. Right? Uh, real quickly, I've mentioned that justification is primarily a legal term, and that's true. But uh, every once in a while, the Bible also uses financial language to talk about justification, uh, both in Hebrew and in Greek. The Hebrew word is hasab, and it means to count or to reckon or to credit. Uh, and here's another fun term in Greek, logizomai. Logizomai means to count or to reckon or to take into account or to credit or to place in someone's account. 
This becomes very important for the way that Christians think about the doctrine of justification because Christians confess that Jesus's, uh, Jesus's righteousness has been credited to us. This is what we mean by the imputation of righteousness. I'll talk about that more in a second. Uh, and also, the Bible also speaks, for instance, of uh, Abraham having faith, believing God, and that faith is credited to him or reckoned to him as righteousness. It is given uh, credited to his account. I mentioned that uh, in theological jargon, this is called imputation of righteousness, which means uh, that this is the kind of righteousness that is passive in the sense that it's not active. We do not summon this sort of righteousness through our own resources by which God recognizes us as righteous. Instead, God gives his own righteousness to us through the work of Jesus Christ. We receive it passively through imputation. It is credited to us. Right? Uh, which means that it is an alien righteousness. And what we mean by that is it is righteousness that comes to us from the outside. Right? It is not something that is within our own power or resources. Martin Luther, very famously, never tired of emphasizing that if we are going to be saved, we're going to have to be saved from the outside. We are so impoverished by sin and our finitude that we simply cannot summon the righteousness uh, that God demands. Right? And so it has to be imputed to us from the outside, which means that it is a gift not a reward. This is very important. God does not reward us with grace. He gifts us with grace, uh, with his own righteousness. It is received as a gift uh, because when the moment we start thinking, talking about reward or merit, we are talking about the, this idea that we can perform actions that God is bound to recognize as righteous. Uh, but as we've been talking about, that's uh, impossible for sinful, broken human beings. So very quickly, I won't spend a lot of time here because you have these on your handout. But I just want to give you a sense by looking at a couple of Old Testament texts on the way that this concept of justification works. Uh, for instance, Genesis 15, I've already mentioned this text, Abraham believed the Lord. So there's that idea of faith as trust in something. So not just simply regarding a statement as true, but being able to sort of give, give oneself to it in trust uh, out of belief. So Abraham believed the Lord, that God is who, who he says he is, and he will do what he says he will do. And it was credited to him as righteousness. Um, skip down there to Habakkuk 2.4. This is a text that appears all over the place in the New Testament, especially in the Apostle Paul. Uh, where the prophet says this, uh, behold, his soul is puffed up. It's not right within him, referring to the, the wicked there. But by contrast, it says the righteous shall live by faith. And this uh, helps, helps us to understand that the, even the Old Testament teaches that God's people have always been made right with God by faith, by trust, and not through any kind of works. Here's how some key New Testament texts put it. Uh, a lot of texts in the book of Romans where Paul gives us his most comprehensive teaching on justification anywhere in the New Testament. But in Romans chapter three, he says, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified, will be declared righteous, will be acquitted in God's sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin or in Romans four. And to the one who does not work, but believes, there's that word again, pistis, who trusts in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, right? Paul's picking up on that language from Genesis 15. Uh, Romans 4, uh, later on, verses 23 through 25. But the words, it was counted to him, he's quoting Genesis 15 here, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, and who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So here you can understand Paul's logic. What does it mean to be justified before God? It is to trust in the one who was uh, crucified and raised for us. Uh, and through that belief, oh, his righteousness is reckoned to us. Perhaps the most powerful description of justification by faith I've ever come across aside from biblical texts is from Martin Luther. And if you know anything about Martin Luther's life, you may remember that before he became the Protestant reformer, 
he was an Augustinian monk and uh, he was a very diligent monk. We know uh, who took his uh, duties as a monastic very, very seriously was uh, feverishly trying to demonstrate righteousness in his life, but he had what, uh, what he later describes as essentially an existential breakdown, right? Uh, just a, a total freak out. And we know this because he wrote in 1545 about his conversion experience. He's describing an event that happened in about 1517 when Luther as a professor of the Bible was preparing lectures on Romans. And that's the, the experience that he's recounting here. And I'll read this for us. It's on your handout. Uh, to get a sense of kind of what Luther is doing with the doctrine of justification. Listen to what he says. For I hated that phrase, the righteousness of God. This is from Romans chapter one, which I had been taught to understand is the righteousness by which God is righteous and by which he punishes unrighteous sinners. So what he's saying is I've always been taught to believe that the righteousness of God is a quality that God uh, holds himself. And then also a standard by which he measures everybody else, and then bludgeons them when they can't measure up. So listen to what he says. Although I lived a blameless life as a monk, I felt I was a sinner with an uneasy conscience before God. So no matter what I did, no matter how many works I performed, I never could measure up. So far from loving that righteous God who punished sinners, I actually hated him. I was in desperation to know what Paul meant in this passage. At last, as I meditated day and night on the relation of the words, the, right, the person shall live by faith. Oh, sorry, the righteousness of God is revealed in it. As it is written, the righteous person shall live by faith. That's Habakkuk 2. I began to understand the righteousness of God as that by which the righteous person lives by the gift of God, faith. In this sentence, the righteousness of God is revealed to refer to a passive righteousness by which the merciful God justifies us by faith. So what Luther is saying here, the big breakthrough for him was understanding that the righteousness of God is not a standard that he uses to bludgeon us because how could we ever measure up to that? Right? God alone is righteous. He says, no, I realize that what Paul is arguing in Romans is that God gifts his righteousness to us in faith out of his sheer grace. In other words, out of the sheer gratuitous, gratuitousness of his nature. So Luther says, what does it mean to be justified? It does not mean to try to rack up all kinds of good works as a monk. It means to simply receive in faith the righteousness that God shares from his own life. And so uh, if you're watching this and you're feeling beaten down, like you've got an uneasy conscience, like you are Uh, so wretched that God could never forgive you for the things that you've done. I just encourage you to be liberated by the radical freedom of the gospel, which teaches that Jesus Christ has done work on your behalf and he shares his righteousness with you. And what you need to do is receive it in faith, in trust and in allegiance. That is what it means to be justified by faith. Now, here in part two, we're going to talk a little bit about sanctification, which is a doctrine that is closely related to justification uh, and yet is distinct. And sanctification is another term that we use all the time. But what do we mean by the doctrine of just, uh, sanctification? What does it mean to be sanctified? Well, the answer might surprise you a little bit. We're going to uh, unpack it here a little bit in our time together. To start, here's a good working definition of sanctification from the theologian Millard Erickson. He says this, sanctification is the continuing work of God in the life of believers, making them actually holy. We'll come back to that in a second. And it's the process by which one's moral condition is brought into conformity with one's legal status before God. So what uh, Erickson is getting at here, and I think it's very important for us to understand this, In justification, we are declared righteous, even though we are not. And then we might say sanctification is God's work to make our actual status match our legal status. So in justification, our legal status is not guilty. And now by the power of his spirit through the work of sanctification, 
God is bringing our actual status into conformity with our standing before God so that we become actually holy, so that we become actually saints. The main word in Hebrew for uh, related to sanctification is this word kadosh. It's very, very important. I want to just make one small point here before we jump into the text. It means to separate or to cut off, right? So on one level, when we talk about something as being holy, we mean that it is distinct. It is separate from ordinary things, right? The sacred is different from the profane. But uh, it also means to set aside for a specific purpose. And almost all, almost always in the Bible, uh, it is re- uh, the word is used uh, in relation to something that is being set aside for God's presence and for God's purpose. Now, what I want you to notice is that this word does not primarily mean moral blamelessness. We have got it into our heads that sanctification is about just being like really good people, trying to do good works, trying to live a life that is above moral reproach. And I love all that. That's great. I'm all for that. But that's not what sanctification primarily means. What it means primarily is to be set apart for God's purpose and for God's presence, right? So when we speak of living holy lives, we are trying to to cultivate lives a fit for God's purpose and for God's presence, which will inevitably mean moral blamelessness, but that's not the primary meaning. Uh, the word in Greek is hagios or hagiitso, to make holy, to consecrate, to set aside for God's purpose. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on these charts because uh, if you've made it to this stage in the course, uh, that's proof probably that you can read and that you're interested But all I want to do here is I've given you these two charts uh, on your study study sheet because I just want to make one very basic point. We tend to think about sanctification as a sort of progressive, ongoing work of God. And it is that. But I also want to make clear that the Bible also speaks of sanctification as something that has already been accomplished. In other words, the Bible, the New Testament in particular, speaks as God's people having already been sanctified, right? Already been claimed for God's purposes and his presence. And then paradoxically, the Bible also speaks in ways that make it seem like sanctification is ongoing. And what I think we have here is a little bit of a both. And the idea is that we have already been sanctified because we have been indwelt by God's living spirit. The Holy spirit of God dwells in us sanctifies us, makes us holy. And now we are to live out that holiness with our conduct, right? So just to give you just a sampling, right? Um, have a look at these texts uh, that describe what theologians call definitive or accomplished sanctification. All that means is the idea that God has already sanctified us, already sanctified. Look, uh, Oh, in 1 Corinthians 1, right? Paul addresses his letter to the church of God in Corinth to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus or uh, Hebrews 10.10. And by that will, the will of God, we have been sanctified already, right? Uh, 1 Peter 1 uses the same language. We've already uh, have the sanctification of the spirit. And so uh, there is on one level, We are already saints, right? Now, uh, Paul addresses the church as the saints gathered in Corinth or Galatia or whatever. Uh, And sometimes if you look around at the church and you say, this is a bunch of saints, you've got to be kidding me, right? You've been to a church, right? It's full of people and people are like kind of rough. But the idea here is uh, sanctification is the work of God. We have already been claimed for God's presence. And so we're going to talk about ecclesiology next week, but it really is the case. Brothers and sisters, that when you gather for worship, the Spirit of God is there and you are in God's presence. Okay? You are already sanctified. But at the same time, we could speak of future or imperatival sanctification. Uh, And all we mean by that is uh, even though we have already been sanctified, we've been set apart for God's presence we still have to kind of work out that sanctification uh, and grow in grace and in holiness, right? Uh, And so the New Testament also speaks of sanctification as a command that we're supposed to fulfill, right? Uh, So uh, in 1 Thessalonians 4, for instance, Paul says that God has not called us for impurity, but into holiness, 
as if it's something to be pursued, right? Or Hebrews 12, strive for peace for, with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So they depict sanctification, holiness as something to be strived after. Is strived a word? I don't know. Uh, you can let me know in the comments. All we're trying to say here is that uh, sanctification is already accomplished and it is yet paradoxically ongoing. And so as we grow in sanctification, we've been set apart for God's purposes. And now we grow into that identity as saints. And that brings us uh, to the doctrine of glorification, which we'll talk about in just a moment. So what are some of the key implications of the doctrine of sanctification? Well, for number one, I think they help us to make a good sense of some of the ethics of the new Testament, right? The question of how we're supposed to behave in the world, right? How we're supposed to conduct ourselves. And it's pretty consistent across all of Paul's letters that the Christian life is about becoming what you already are. So for instance, in first Thessalonians one, Ephesians four, Philippians one, Colossians one, other places too, I could have uh, listed. Paul essentially says to the churches gathered in those places, he says, listen, you are already saints. God has claimed you by his spirit. Now live like it. And that, I think, is a really helpful way for uh, thinking about the Christian life. And one, frankly, I wish that I had known earlier in my life before I thought that the Christian life was just about trying to be really, really good and not do certain things and do other certain good works. And I thought of the Christian life as sort of a laundry list of rules of do's and don'ts. But really, the New Testament's vision is much more powerful and dynamic and interesting than that. It is the idea that in the work of Jesus Christ and in the giving of the Spirit, God has created a new kind of humanity, a people for himself who are already living in the kingdom, which has been inaugurated in Jesus and will be consummated in the age to come. But we can live that reality now. So become what you are. Paul is constantly reminding the saints, don't go back to the way that you were before. Become what you are. A key point here, sanctification is not about trying harder. All right? The life of holiness is not about sort of a gritting your teeth and pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps and uh, trying to keep all the rules and regulations. Now, of course, to be sure, the New Testament is full of ethical commands. God's people are commanded to behave in certain ways. But the key thing we need to keep in mind here that all of that is done in the power of the spirit. This is an argument that Paul makes throughout his letters, but in a place like Galatians five, when he says, keep in step with the spirit, it is the spirit of God that sanctifies us, not our own efforts or ingenuity. So we might sum it up like this. Sanctification is already accomplished, but transformation is the result, right? You're already a saint. Now act like it, right? That's the vision. And the end is likeness to Jesus Christ. And the word that Paul uses here in Romans 8 is sumorphous. And the word literally means having the same shape. So by the power of the Spirit, as you allow God to sanctify you, you are being made into someone whose life has the same shape as Jesus Christ. Beautiful, beautiful vision. Which brings us to glorification, which is the end of the road, right? The end of the salvation express, the last stop. And how might we, how might we define glorification? Well, a good definition is here, the consummation of God's salvific purposes at the eschaton. And by the eschaton, we just mean the last chapter of the story when God is in all. We're going to talk about eschatology at the very end in week 12, whereby God will restore restore the whole of creation and outfit believers with redeemed bodies fit for that new creation. We'll talk about this more when we talk about eschatology, but one common misconception about the Christian faith is that it teaches that God is going to destroy the world and start over. Uh, That is not at all what the Bible teaches, in fact, and it teaches uh, not only will God not destroy the world, he will actually remake it. He will restore it, renew it. Uh, At the end of the story, we have not a disembodied paradise, but a new heavens and a new earth where uh, where God's people are depicted as having been raised from the dead in bodies that are physical, but something more than physical. We don't even really have categories for it now. But the whole idea that I want you to understand just for our purposes this evening is that the, the end of the story for both creation and for those who are in Christ 
is glorification right, of the whole created order of our own individual lives. And the word here that's used often in Hebrew is the word kavod, and it means a display of, when, uh, of splendor or wealth or pomp. It is a word uh, to describe something so glorious that it almost blows your mind. And it's matched in Greek by the word doxa, which means magnificence or glory or splendor, brilliance, brightness. And so uh, whenever the Bible uses these terms, kavod, doxa, it's the sort of glory that just sort of bends your mind. You have a hard time imagining what could he, what it would even look like. And so here's a couple key texts that kind of point towards the end of the story when God's creation and his people are finally and ultimately glorified. Uh, Psalm 73, uh, man, which is maybe my favorite Psalm. I know you're not supposed to have a favorite, but uh, where the psalmist says, nevertheless, I'm continually with you. I'm with you, God, Yahweh. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, in other words, when I die, you will receive me into your glory, into your kavod, uh, whatever it is that God has planned for his people. Think of uh, what Paul says in Romans 8, one of the most magnificent passages in the whole New Testament. He says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption, and it will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So Paul's vision is that at the end of the story, God will redeem the entire creation. He will glorify it. It will shine with the brilliance that we can't yet understand. And that individual persons, you and me, are going to have the glory of the children of God revealed in us. And I wonder sometimes, I'm from Colorado. Uh, some of you may not be natives, but if you've spent any time in Colorado looking around, it is a beautiful place. And I thought to myself, if this is creation subject to bondage and death and decay, I wonder what the glorious version will look like. Right? If this is, uh, yeah, if what we have now is creation marred by sin and death, uh, and it's scarcely possible to imagine what God has in store for the created order. First Corinthians 13 is all about glorification 13 through 15. Really? I know as a church, you're going through first Corinthians 13, first uh, Corinthians as a book at fathom. So maybe you've come to this passage where Paul says, well, now I see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face for, I know uh, now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So, uh, when we talked about the doctrine of sin, we talked a little bit about what are called the noetic effects of sin. This is, uh, sin's ability to sort of corrupt and distort our thinking. And so now, even when we are in the truth, man, it is still so hard. We are straining our eyes. There's things that are hard for us to understand, even as we grow in the faith. And Paul says at the end of the story, when you see God face to face, uh, you will know and you will be fully known. Yeah, just a couple more texts I want to point out. First um, Corinthians 15, Paul argues that the resurrection body, when you and I die, uh, our bodies begin to decay. But at the resurrection for Paul, uh, he says, we're all going to be raised in glory, right? A glorious body uh, and a body modeled after, after the resurrected body of Jesus Christ, as we're going to talk about here in just a minute. Uh, and Paul sees this body as being physical, but also sort of something beyond physical. One New Testament scholar has called it transphysical. Uh, he's going to take these physical bodies that are subject to decay and old age and disease and glorify them. So all that is to say the future of individual believers is not a disembodied state of bliss that has found its way into our popular imagination, but it is not a biblical image at all. Um, I remember thinking, uh, I was having a conversation with my grandmother, who's a very pious woman uh, and not a trained theologian. So some of my questions were not fair, but I remember asking her, you know, what are we going to do in heaven? And she said, oh, you know, we're going to sort of like float around and, you know, and I said, we're going to float around. And she said, yeah, but you know, we're going to do other stuff too. Like we're going to sing praise songs to Jesus. And I was maybe 10, I may be younger, eight or nine. And I remember thinking, uh, that sounds terrible. Uh, if that's what we're going to be doing in heaven, maybe I'll check out and uh, see what's going on in hell. Cause it can't be worse 
then Lord, I lift your name on high on repeat for eternity, right? But in fact, uh, the Bible's vision uh, for the future of creation is much more interesting than that. It is the created order completely restored and believers in glorified bodies to inhabit it. All right, so floating around with a harp, not a biblical image. I don't know where it came from. I'm sorry if that burst your bubble. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says something so beautiful. Listen to what he says. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul's doing a really clever wordplay here, actually. Uh, the word kavod uh, in Hebrew, which we translate as glory or splendor, the word literally means weightiness, like heaviness. Uh, and, he, and Paul is picking up on that idea here in that passage. He says, our afflictions that you and I uh, encounter every day, and I don't, I don't know what it is for you. You know, maybe it's a, a relationship that's difficult, right? Maybe your marriage is struggling, or maybe it's your health that's declining and your body just won't cooperate with you. Or maybe it's your finances that you're stressed out or you're, you're struggling with where you are in this season of life. You're deeply unhappy. Uh, maybe you badly want another career or maybe you badly want to be married or whatever your affliction is. And it feels so heavy because when we are feeling affliction, it crushes us. It's the only thing we can think about. That's one of the things that suffering does. It can turn us in on ourselves, crush us. And Paul says all of that, it's light compared to the weight that is being revealed uh, in us, the weight of glory. And so Paul is turning our epistemology, the way that we relate to the world completely on its head. He's saying everything that we can see and touch and feel, everything that feels more real than anything else, he says, that's not real. It's only a shadow of what is real. What is real are the things that we can't see. You know, the glory that's going to be revealed. And now we come to my favorite passage in the entire New Testament, 1 John chapter 3. It's a glorification text. Somebody says, Beloved, we're God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. So he's writing to Christians who are following Jesus in the first century, and that's hard. Much harder than, than it is now. And they're wondering, man... Where is this all going? I'm following Jesus. I'm being persecuted for it. My life is still difficult. There's still death and decay all around me. And he says, little, he says, brothers and sisters, we're God's children. And where this is going, no one knows fully. But listen to what he says. But we do know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we will see him as he is couple things I want you to notice here. God's future is a physical future, right? And it may sound like bad news to you that you have to take your body into eternity, right? Have you ever had this experience where you like look at a picture and you're like, oh man, who's that person? He looks terror. Oh no, that's me, right? Or have you ever looked in the mirror and just thought, really, this is, this is what we're working with? Or maybe... Uh, your body is beset by disease uh, and it's just battling with you all the time. You know, our, our bodies just constantly disappoint us. Right. And the idea that we take our bodies with us into eternity may not sound that good. It probably sounds good to like Matthew McConaughey. Right. But for people like you and me, maybe that doesn't sound like such a grand hope, except John says, you're going to be transformed into the likeness of Christ. At the end of the story, your body is going to be glorified like Jesus' resurrection body is glorified. And not only that, you are going to see him like he is. And that goes back to what Paul was saying in 1 Corinthians 13. We seek to know God, but we can't quite see him like he is. Like any self-respecting evangelical, when I was in college, I worked as a barista at Starbucks. And I used to work the really early morning shift because I had another job that I worked in the afternoon. So I'd be driving to work at four and I had, uh, I had my system down to a science. I didn't have a garage of course, which was a problem in the winter because I would have to be to work at four 30, but I would wake up at four 11. 
every day. And I would get out to my car and there was no time built into my uh, morning routine to defrost my windshield or even to scrape it off. So what I would do is just sort of take my chances because I figured there wouldn't really be anyone on the road at 430. And I would just sort of feel my way until my windshield thawed. And I remember some mornings driving where I could barely see the road at all. And sometimes that's what following Jesus feels like. Like you're driving, but you can't really see the road at all. Where is it going? Well, John says the day is coming where you're going to see him like he is. And you're going to be like him. So what are some of the implications? Well, number one, the Christian hope is that Jesus's post-resurrection body is the model and basis for our glorified bodies. Um, which raises an interesting question. Does that mean that we carry our scars and all into the life to come? Because what's interesting is the resurrected Jesus is depicted as still having his scars. And it's an interesting question, right? Uh, why would Jesus still have his scars? Well, they are, you know, those are painful memories of what happened to him. But yet, by the time you get to the book of Revelation, the scars have been transformed not into wounds, but into trophies of the Lamb's victory. And I wonder if it's going to be the same thing for you and me. We're all the scars that we bear now, physical and emotional, right? Uh, The scars that make us who we are when we carry those in to the life to come. I wonder, I don't know for sure, but I wonder if God will transform those scars so that they no longer hurt. I don't know. What we do know is that the resurrection of Jesus shows us that the world to come and this world exist in a relationship of continuity and discontinuity. What I mean by that is Jesus's resurrection body is physical. We know this because he's doing all kinds of embodied tasks with his disciples. He speaks to them but also he eats breakfast with them. Uh, John's gospel makes a a big deal of the idea that Jesus eats fish. Well, why? Uh, One of the reasons I suspect is to show us that Jesus's resurrection is physical. And yet Jesus's body is somehow more than physical. It's not totally, it's not constrained to the, the laws that ordinarily constrain bodily existence. Jesus can kind of walk through walls or lock doors. He can appear, he can disappear whatever. Um, I don't know exactly what all that means, except to say that God's future both is in continuity with this life and somehow radically transforms it and glorifies it. And at the end of the day, glorification is the substance of the Christian hope. This is Paul's argument all the way through first Corinthians chapter 15, uh, that whatever light and momentary afflictions that you and I have to bear because we have been justified by God, because we have been sanctified by his spirit and because we have been united to Jesus Christ, we know that come what may at the end of the story, we're going to be like him. We're going to see him like he is. And so uh, I will leave that here. Uh, You'll notice perhaps that tonight we talked uh, primarily in individual terms. What does it mean for an individual person to be reconciled to God through justification? And that's important Uh, But it's only one part of the equation. And and next week, we're going to pick up on the theme of ecclesiology. uh, And we're going to talk about the church, what it is, uh, what is it for, and why it matters. I'm really looking forward to it. It's a personal uh, sort of soapbox issue for me. So I anticipate going on several rants. So just prepare yourself for that. Uh, But in the meantime, I'll look forward to seeing you next week as we talk about the doctrine of the church. (laughs) 